Hi everybody, my name's Miana, and I'm an alcoholic. Glad to be here and glad to be sober for another 24 hours. Uh, I usually, I've done this a few times, and so what I've learned to do is to, I've written a script, and I basically follow the script because it just seems it's, I lose my path, you know, when I try to speak off the cuff, because I think I've been doing this for a long time, and perhaps as, and as I speak, even even ever even after all this time, whenever I speak, I remember things that I'd forgotten, that I've repressed in my alcoholism. So bear with me as uh, I have a doctor's appointment today to get new contacts. So I'm kind of I'm sans glasses and I'm reading from a script. So it's not that I want you to see my face. It's just it's a necessity right now. <clears throat> He called me Mark for a long time, and that's how I introduced myself to other drunks uh, in these halls for over 25 years. But I mean, my, my name is Brianna, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm grateful I haven't had a drink today, and I'm grateful for you all are here having a meeting that I can attend. As some of you may or may not know, I have to take that first step every morning when I awaken. My drunken log is like most of the folks in this meeting. I drank my way out of two universities, talked my way out of two DUIs before I got stuck with my first one. And then I talked my way into a diversion for that, so I didn't stick to my record even. I wrecked careers, I banged up cars, I passed out in the front yard numerous times, I wrecked our credit, and suffered days and months and years of continuous hangovers and, you know, all that good illness that comes with being an alcoholic, you know, like throwing up every other day and, uh, you know, feeling the ulcers in my stomach as I take a drink. And I spent countless hours conniving, scheming, and trying to figure out how to get my daily alcohol fix to keep the supply flowing. And I was born and raised the son of school teachers uh, in Hutchinson, Kansas, but both my parents came off the farm. So we spent a lot of time in, uh, on the family farms in Ulysses, Kansas, which is in the southwest corner of the state. It's a, and uh, Ellsworth, Kansas, which is in the north central part of the state in these hills known as the Smoky Hills. Now, the Smoky Hills look like, like Scotland, and the weather's a lot like Scotland in the winter. So uh, it's kind of comforting to me in some sort of weird way. Uh, so anyway, I look at my, uh, as my upbringing as being half rural and partly suburban. Because we lived and uh, grew up in a town called Hutchinson, Kansas, which is in the south central part of the uh, state. Uh, Kansas is, uh, for those of you who don't know, Kansas is the middle of the country, and it's uh, um, it's on the high plains. It's where the high plains begin. It's, uh, they, go, they transition from the, the mid plains to the lower plains and to the high plains. I'm the eldest of the four children, uh, two of which are alcoholics. Uh, two of my siblings, you know, can drink whatever they want to, whenever they want to. And then I have another sibling who I'm afraid we're going to lose to this disease. I'm the only one of us that was in recovery. Um, I'm of Irish Bohemian descent on my father's side and Scottish and German descent on my mother's side. And both my grandfathers and all four of my great grandfathers were known alcoholics not to mention a maternal uncle, aunts, and great aunts, and many great aunt uncles from my 
uh, from both sides of the family. Being a cowgirl, I convinced genetics played a large part in my disease. My mother and her father tried to warn me as to the dangers of alcoholism in our family on several occasions, but teenagers are not too are not known for their insight and wisdom. And uh, you know, I just I just want to make it perfectly clear though that my ancestors did not hold the, my head beneath the taps, nor pour any rum down my throat. I cheerfully did that by myself. The child-rearing wisdom of the 1970s was this. As long as the kids are drinking, they're not doing drugs, which, as we all know, is a fallacy. The alcohol is a drug. It is the most dangerous of all the drugs, and we've known that. It's the only one that if you, get, if you overdose on alcohol, they can't give you a shot to come out of it. All they can do is pump you out, clean you out, stick you with uh, uh, hydration fluids, and hope that you wake up the next day. And any other drug they can give you something for is an antidote. So that's how dangerous this drug is. And it's a gateway drug. But uh, you know that whole fallacy of the 70s is just, I just, it's hard to wrap your mind around it now, looking back. And I had my first beer on my 14th birthday in April. And I distinctly remember how impressed my peers with the volume of alcohol I could consume. All of a sudden, I was really cool and I could fit in. Alcohol, alcohol temporarily quelled the firestorms in my head concerning my life and my growing gender dysphoria, because that was playing a part of it at the time, although I didn't realize it. My hard drinking was considered to be a desirable male trait that I adapted as a huge part of my man shield that I used to survive. And by the time I was 16, I drank to get drunk every time I raised a bottle of can. I could easily outdrink my peers. And I became known as the person to drive people around because I could drink more than them. It's also easier to recount my length of sobriety between my adolescence and my recovery, which I had two. One lasted three months when I was running, when I was training for Kansas State football, that's American football, of course, in 1979 and 80, and the other for about six weeks in 1984 after I drank myself out of the University of Kansas. In fact, in my second attempt at sobriety, it was my mother at a family function who uttered those sweet words every drunk appears to hear. You probably can just have one drink. And it's, you know, it was, and it took me 10 years to maintain any kind of a lengthy sobriety after that. I now understand she was just trying to be kind, but I think she intuitively knew that I needed alcohol to feel that I had to fit in with the groups, you know, even if it was my family group. And for me, alcoholism is, uh, is sort of wave-like. You know, I'm either on an immense high, you know, or I'm on a full down low, you know. And I could drink, I'd just be foam blown drink for days at a time, or I just, I could maintain what I call the two, uh, two drink a day minimum, you know, just get two drinks a day and I could uh, get through the shakes and the, and the uh, uh, hangovers, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, I would binge drink for a while, and then I wouldn't binge drink for a while. And I met my wife when I was uh, probably on one of my better swings when I was, and we got married 
when I was 28 years old. And I think my parents and everyone thought that she could save me. And actually she did because in the, uh, the final days of my drinking career, she made me come home by seven o'clock every Wednesday night with a dollar so she could attain, attend the Al-Anon meetings. And I resented that dollar bill and the drink it represented for a long time. But it turned out to be the best investment of the time and money I ever made. As after putting up with my drinking for seven long, terrible years, she farmed the cubs out one Friday night and told me it was time for a divorce. And I wasn't really too surprised. I had been pretending to be a self-important carpenter at the time, and I had an epiphany as she talked. I saw myself pushing a shopping cart full of tools on the streets from bar to bar for drinks and tips. I even saw someone else, you know, raising my cubs and loving my wife. So on March 4th of 1994, I crawled and cried my way into the halls of Monroe House AA in Hutchinson, Kansas. I'd been in Monroe House previously before hitting my bottom, a couple of other drunken carpenters and I heard God this, God that, and I got out the door. I think we may even stopped at a bar on our way home, but that Friday night of doom as she outlined my divorce plan, I begged her to allow me to try A again and she shrugged and saying she thought I should get help, but uh, it didn't matter. We were still getting divorced. And crawling into the rooms of AA and asking for help was one of the hardest things I had to do. Uh, I parked my pickup like a block away and walked because, you know, I didn't want anyone to see my pickup in front of an AA house. And I didn't think I could laugh or smile again. My life was just ruined. And it was, uh, Monroe House became my first AA home group. And I did my first 90 meetings in 90 days. And... Uh, Later on in my career, I moved to uh, back to Ellsworth, Kansas, but I joined the New Beginnings in Salina, Kansas, because this is a much larger group. And uh, I now belong to Kansas City We Agnostic and Freethinkers here in Kansas City. And I, Zoom, uh, and I serve the group as a Zoom coordinator. I was already an atheist when I went into Alcoholics Anonymous. So I never did, nor have I ever, you know, joined in with the group prayers, you know, either beginning or the end. Um, it's a couple of weeks into the program, became concerned about being atheist agnostic because I keep hearing people saying, you know, you have to get, you know, you have to do all this God stuff. And I talked to a gentleman who later became my cranky old sponsor and he explained to sick because I could get the second, the first step, you know, that if I didn't take that drink, I wouldn't get drunk. But that the second step, you know, he, he finally, the, for some reason, he had a can, an old can of beer up on a shelf. I don't know what the deal was, but my cranky old sponsor pointed at a beer can and said, Don't you believe that a 16 bottle of a 16 ounce bottle of beer or that one shot at an ounce of rum? kicked your ass every time he took it and he said that's a power grading yourself right there so it's easy to believe in a power grading yourself just take that first step because there are so many more powers greater than yourself and that made a lot of sense and that probably kept me in the program for a long time 
He told me to take it, take it easy and take that first step on a daily basis. And he drilled it into my head. And Bob B also had a lot of good sayings in that first two weeks of sobriety or years that I got to know him. And I tried to pass it on to others. You know, the first one being, if I don't take the first stink, I don't get drunk. He said that every time he shared. He also said, you only have to make a drink for 24 hours a day. And if that doesn't work, take that first step every uh, 24 minutes of every hour. And if that doesn't work, take that first step every 24 seconds of every minute and you will stay sober. And, you know, I believed him because that's what I had to do this first three or four days. He also told me, and when I got my first year coin, he told me to uh, put the coin in my mouth if, if I wanted to take that first drink. And if it uh, dissolved, then he would buy the bottle and we'd both get drunk. And I actually used that a few times, you know, that uh, second year of sobriety. Um, I read the big book in a 120-hour setting. You know, I got the big book and I sat down and I read it. And after, you know, the time I have in the program, I considered the, pre, the AA preamble is a magnificent piece of philosophy and, and writing, actually. It's comparable to the Magna Carta or Lincoln's Gettysburg Rest. And I, I now view the, the balance of the big book as kind of something that is like uh, a constitution of a, a constitutional government has a constitution that you can change and amend. You know, it's, and I have to, but uh, the, the canonization of the big book really bothers me. You know, people saying, you know, that it's divine or that uh, it's divinely inspired or that it shouldn't be changed because it was that way 80 years ago. Everything changes. Even the rocks turn to sand. So, you know, I think it's a good thing that we keep in mind that, you know, there are guarantees of truth in that book, but it is not a Bible. And even the, and as most of us atheists and agnostics agree, the Bible is a highly flawed uh, piece of architectural work um most have a lot of most of the uh, halls have a lot of uh, posters and platitudes on the walls and Monroe house had those and one i used to see a lot was uh g-o-d g.o.d and about my third week in the program i asked a wise member of the group uh how can you know an, an organization that's not organized with any sect denomination or religion can justify having G-O-D on the walls. And she explained that uh, G-O-D stood for good orderly direction or the words that came from the mouths of the peoples when they spoke in the meetings. And by following these suggestions that one heard in the meetings, particularly those long timers or the decade counters, one could probably stay sober for another 24 hours. So I fell in the habit of listening and hanging around to those long timers and those people with long periods of sobriety you know uh, and they were always at it one of the common things they had is that they were adamant of taking step one in a day at a time and going to meetings uh, i found my inner girl found and sought out uh, betty e as my first female sponsor and even though at that time we called it an artistic sponsor but we never talked about my dysphoria uh, but she talked me how to use the tenets of the serenity prayer to guide my decision-making throughout the day and to drink a lot of coffee. And she also taught me 
how to take if I took that fifth step or that tenth step during the day as I walked, I didn't have to take multiple four steps and beat myself up on a you know a yearly or six month basis. She said, just take that step, tenth step, and then you don't have to make as many amends. You know, make the amends as you go along. And it just made so much sense. And so my life became much better at that time. And uh, I know that I can't stay alcohol-free by myself because I've failed miserably every time I've ever tried it. And I think it is the faith of our combined experiences that makes it possible for me to hope and remain alcohol-free on a daily basis. And I've learned through the meetings that when we share our experience, our combined experience, strength, and hope, that together we can deal with such a cunning and baffling and powerful foe. In my teen years of, of recovery, moved up to Ellsworth, and um, I was informed by my group and uh, the other group in Hutchinson, Kansas, that uh, it was a good idea for me to join a group out of Salina because they had a solid program or programs of recovery in Salina, as opposed to joining the local group in Ellsworth. And what, when you get west of uh, Kansas City, in Kansas, it's a very rural, large state. It's like 400 miles long and 200 miles wide. Uh, but there's not a lot, there's more cows than people. There's 6 million cows and 3 million people, something like that. Uh, anyway, so while people in the smaller town, the smaller communities, communities of less than, I'd say 20,000, or even uh, communities less than 40,000, what people do is they drive from town to town regionally to make meetings there's kind of a little meeting circle they'll pile in a car and they might drive as, as far as 100 miles a night to get to a meeting anyway um so i was warned to uh to go to salina kansas and i did that and it turned and that's that's how i new beginnings in salina became my second uh home group and i didn't do a lot i didn't do a lot in my teen years i mean i, I would go to meetings once a month, I, I kind of called it my 12-step, uh, uh, 12-month plan. And that was about it. You know, I, I would think about AA as I was driving uh, to work or to the meetings and things. But uh, I really didn't. Uh, I wasn't very involved. And I remember my new sponsor uh, in Salina told me that I should start attending the speaker meetings and the birthday meetings because the newcomers needed to see uh, continuous, you know, continuous sobriety, that there's hope. And I had never thought about uh, my continuous sobriety as being hopeful to anyone. So that was, a, so you always learn things, you know, as you go along, you know, along this path. And uh, it was in, my wife gave me my 20th year coin in New Beginnings. And uh, that was a very special moment because uh, and she told me later that night, she didn't, yeah, they really didn't think I could stay sober, you know, for 24 hours, or let alone two decades. So that was a moving thing for me. And uh, from that point on, she gave me uh, my coins, you know, until she was unable to do it. I think she gave me my coins till my 24th. And it was on the 24th, my, uh, she died in my arms. She got cancer, and uh, 
I made meetings on a more continuing on a weekly basis at that time or more. I mean, if she was going to uh, take her treatments, I would take her and she would uh, take her chemo and I would go to meetings and come back after the meetings. And, uh, you know, as AA got me through that and, uh, you know, she, her greatest fear would, uh, was to die in a hospital, you know, in a, in a clinical setting. And so when that time came, you know, we spent a lot of time up here in Kansas City, you know, going taking some uh, radical medications and treatments, which gave us another good year of life, you know, really a good year together of fun and, and things. And um, so then um, she passed away, you know, in my arms. And uh, it was a month later, and I was, uh, I needed a meeting that morning because it was my 24th birthday. And so I popped up my computer and, and I found Kansas City We Agnostic. So that was at KU Med. Well, I knew where KU Med was. And so I drove to KU Med and I stood around. I got a cup of coffee and I stood around and I looked until I saw what it looked like alcoholics going through the door. You know, if you've been in the program in a while, you can kind of tell an alcoholic when they're heading for a meeting because they're undetoured. They're going to get to that meeting if they decided to get there. It's called going to any length. And it's a wonderful thing to watch. And so I figured out where the meeting room was and I entered the meeting room. And uh, it was on that 24th birthday, my 24th AA birthday, that I discovered uh, a group of like-minded people that didn't need a mythical creature to come down and swoop down to save us that believed in the caring and compassion and love uh, between each other to keep us sober for 24 hours. And they talked about the truth, you know. We did a lot of great things in that meeting. Uh, when the seventh tradition came along, they didn't talk about it, they didn't waste a lot of time. You know, they some one of the gentlemen would flip off his hat and people put dollars on the hat and uh, so somebody else counted it and put their hat back on. And, you know, uh, at the end of the meeting, they closed with these sacred words. Our meeting is concluded. There's no handshaking or kumbaya or, you know, culture-driven stuff that had always bugged me about uh, uh, regular AA. So it was like this aha moment, this meeting of freedom. And from that point on, every time I came to Kansas City, because my kids lived here and my brother lives up here but every time i came to kansas city i always uh that aa meeting at KU Med was you know I, I just the whole trip was planned around it basically and as time progressed i realized that uh uh if, if hanging around the agnostic aa freed me from the concepts of the victimized language of the abrahamic faiths because the people within agnostic AA, our currency is truth. And how it works in the first three paragraphs, they talk about truth three times. And that strikes me as being very relevant because, you know, three times in what, three chapters or something like that, they talk about having the truth to accept change, a truth to accept what can be done. 
And I just, I liken myself more to being with a group of people like diagnoses, you know, always looking for truth as opposed to, to someone who is uh, pretending it doesn't happen and that somebody will come and save us from that and that we are wrong and that we have to be saved. We are not wrong, you know. Character defense it's, is an intellectually flawed concept. We are all of good character or we wouldn't be in these rooms, you know. People who have defective characters just keep drinking until they die. The people with good characters, and I think that's all people, we have defective ways of thinking. And so it, the, the whole concept of uh, looking for truth was a big thing uh, as I walked this path. Um, and I discovered, you know, I shouldn't pretend to be a man anymore. And so uh, it was, so now I, uh, I celebrate my, uh, my day as Brianna, my birthday is Brianna on my AA birthday. And it's more important to me actually than my belly button birthday. Okay, just checking the time there, sorry. Um, another thing, uh, as, I as I decided to transition, it became pretty apparent that being on the high plains is a, is a dangerous proposition uh, because, you know, it is a very uh, redneck religious area of the world. You know, you can't stand in a, in a parking lot and swing a dead cat and not hit 30 churches, you know. And one of the things that uh, I would do is I, as I, uh, progress along this path, you know, as I accumulated time, I, I kind of found I was, you know, true to myself as far as, you know, that truth thing in the, uh, in the preamble. And uh, is that, you know, if I felt that the conversation within the meeting was getting too churchy, you know, I would say something in my share about, you know, this isn't Sunday school, this is AA, we talk about alcoholism, you know, go get saved somewhere else. And, you know, it was kind of a responsibility to do that. And I can't tell you the people after I, after the meeting was concluded and the meeting after the meeting, they'd come up to me and say, oh, we're so glad you said that. You know, that needed to be said. So I put it to you that if you find yourself in those situations, you know, the truth will set you free. You know, all things, the truth will set you free. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to learn, you know. But as I came in, as I was transitioning and I discovered that uh, we agnostic rethinkers had meetings six days a week, but some of them were in a church and churches just made me feel nervous. You know, I didn't like going to meetings in churches, but eventually I figured out that the people who were showing up on Sunday were all showing up at these church meetings and they were just like the AA meetings in the, uh, at the, uh, at the KU med. So that kind of, broke me out of that idea that all church meetings were bad you know so that was a new thing but anyways i, I would uh, introduce myself as they called me mark and uh i did that for a long time and then we had this gala holiday gathering and uh, jenny asked us to ask with the you know to attend and bring something and she wanted an rvsp and i used my female a gmail account as opposed to my old mailbox that was a pun and um and she answered back and she met me at the door and she says well how do i introduce you and i said well let's just play it by ear 
you know, and so uh, I walked in and one of the lovely ladies, you know, I've set my food out and one of the lovely ladies looked at me and she goes, okay, what is your name? You know, because she put everything together and that's when I first introduced myself as Brianna. And uh, after the meeting, I got with this, uh, with uh, Jenny and I said, you know, I moved to Kansas City, I need a new sponsor and I'd like you to be a sponsor. And, and she made it with the Kabat uh, that uh, we sponsored each other. And it's been a glorious friendship, a, a glorious way upon this path. And it fills me with so much hope and joy, you know. So those of you who don't have sponsors, you know, I, I highly suggest you get it. But I'm also here to tell you, I know of lots of people that have made this path without having a sponsor, you know, but I can't imagine not doing it. It's that important. But anyway, so, um, and then before I left, she goes, I think you need to come out to the group. And I hadn't come, really come out to anybody except my family, you know, and just my incidental contacts in Kansas City. And uh, it was on, and I looked it up, and that Saturday, the next meeting was Saturday, and it was the solstice, you know. And as all you pagans know, you know, solstice is very special times in our lives. And, and, that, and our group met at noon on the solstice. And so, you know, I don't play dice with the universe. So I rode my bicycle over there and uh, nobody hit me. You know, I ran every red light and tried to dodge in between cars and no one killed me, but I got to the A house. And uh, that was the first time I looked at people, my group in the eyes and said, you know, my name is Brianna and I'm an alcoholic. And the wave, of love that, that hit me was uh, incredible. It's like nothing I've ever felt before. The acceptance and the love and the tolerance, you know, it's beyond amazing. And, uh, you know, I've been in the program long enough, I know when those pink clouds come and the best thing you can do when you got a keep pink cloud, you know, is grab your surfboard and ride it or grab your bicycle and ride it. So I rode that pink cloud for a long time. Uh, so one of the things to, that I've learned about myself, you know, being in this group is how important the truth is. And I know I've talked about the truth and I know that I talked about the, the first step a lot, but those of that is the first step is my truth. Thank you for letting me speak. Thank you for letting me share. I hope I haven't bored you too much. I love you all.